You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Jennifer Dibel joins us for a chat about Irish foods, the uniqueness of historical fiction, and her latest release, The Maid of Ballymacool. For today's Pinch of the Past, we are looking at the Victorian etiquette of courtship. And today's bookworm review is brought to you by Norella Adkins from Story Chats Podcast. Codename Edelweiss by Stephanie Lansom is a Christian novel, and the faith themes are woven beautifully into the story. As for giveaways, our current giveaway is Daughter of Eden by Jill Eileen Smith. That giveaway ends on April 5th. You can find it at historicalbookworms.com under the giveaways tab. Jennifer Dybel is an author of A Dance at Donegal, winner of the Kip Award for Historical Romance and the Lady of Galway Manor, a parable group bestseller. Her work has appeared on Encourage, On the Better Mom, in Missions Mosaic Magazine, and in other publications. With first-hand immersive experience abroad, Jennifer writes stories that help redefine home through the lens of culture, history, and family. After nearly a decade of living in Ireland and Austria, she now lives in Arizona with her husband and their three children. Jennifer, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to get to talking about this book. But before we dive into that, you have actually spent a significant amount of time in Ireland. Were there any fun food or colloquialisms that you dearly miss? Oh, gosh, so much food. The tea, I I like iced tea as much as the next American girl, but just there's something about that Irish cup of their tea that they use is they're not just sticking a Lipton tea bag in the water and calling it a day. It's like it's whole other delicacy. They also have this apple tart that they make that I have never liked an apple pie. I always worried that I was going to lose my American card for that, but I never cared for Mm. it. And then they, I had this apple tart that had this, it had both sort of a pastry crust bottom and then like a crumble topping. And then they serve it with fresh cream over the top. And oh my goodness, it is so good. And then of course you can't leave out the Irish fry breakfast, which will kill you, but you'll die happy. And it's all sorts of meats, the Irish bacon, which is really more like ham and then several different kinds of sausages. Sometimes they'll throw baked beans on there, but that's more of a British thing. There's usually some grilled tomato and toast and then of course your tea. So we were never hurting for good food while we were over there, despite what people have to say about British and Irish cuisine. That sounds amazing. And honestly, it's it's making me think of Southern cuisine a little bit with that, that lovely meat breakfast. But that apple tart, man, that sounds really good. I could see how that kind of blows the apple pie out of the water. Oh, it does. And I don't know, there's something, maybe it's the kind of apples they use. Like they don't use the apple pie filling out of a can, like they make it themselves. And then they like to pour custard on things too. A lot of my friends liked to put like pouring custard on there, but I preferred the fresh cream. But yeah, it was like otherworldly. It was so good. Mm, That sounds good. Now, 
your two books that you've, is this your third book? Yes, my third book that's coming out. I thought so. And the other two books were in Ireland as well. That's a great just setting to write. And But we're looking at historical. So you could have written contemporary set in Ireland. How did you get started in writing historical fiction? You know, what really just draws you to the genre? Well, I think especially in Ireland, there's just so much history to explore. And we've done the potato famine and we've done the Irish War for Independence, which deserve our attention, absolutely. But I just was drawn by all of these untold stories from the places that we got to visit or the places that we didn't. And I was left wondering what happened there. You drive by some old tumble down stone house looking thing. And it's not like a, an official historical site, but you're like, what happened there? Like who lived there? What did they do? How long has it been like that? And so it just sort of sparked to life all of these what ifs um, that could tie into the actual history. So it just was extremely fascinating and just sparked my creative juices more than the contemporary idea. I think that's fair. We don't, at least in America, I think, get very much of the history of Ireland. We get all the history of Britain because they they ruled the British Isles. They settled America along with a few other countries, but they, they were the main <laughs> ones. And so... I feel like we don't get, like you say, much more than, yeah, the potato famine and their fight for independence, and then that's it. But yeah, there are so many people there who live there for thousands of years. There's so much history to pull from. For sure. And so much of their history that actually influenced our own. There was such such a massive flood of Irish that came over throughout the millennia, really, even before the famine. And they brought with them all of their traditions and their language and their food even. And so a lot of the things that we enjoy today were actually have their roots there, like bluegrass music and whiskey. And they claim to have even invented the refrigerator. It's just fascinating when you find all these little connection points that you didn't think we would have. Yeah, very cool. I didn't know that about like whiskey and bluegrass music, although I can definitely see that now. And when you moved over there, like kind of for the first time, were you ever at a point where you like discovered that something that you were introduced to in America actually came from Ireland and you're like surprised by that? Do you have any examples you could give us? Well, I think a lot of like our phrases that we use, for example, whiskey, they claim to have invented it. And the Irish Gaelic for whiskey is Ishkabaha, which literally translates to water of life. But when the English speakers came around and they'd be like, oh, what is this? They're like, oh, it's Ishkabaha. Like they'd be like, okay, whiskey. Okay, yay, whiskey. Because they couldn't say it. Oh, I didn't know that. Very cool. So is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? This book really, I felt, led to write it for the person who feels unseen, who feels like they're just slogging along their day-to-day life, just trying to survive and not really seeing any way out or seeing any like what's the use of even trying to have a dream to accomplish because I'm never going to, there's never going to be a chance. I was writing Brianna's experience through this book 
I just felt the Lord's kindness wash down over her through some of the other characters and the experiences she had, even though her experiences at Valley McCool are heartbreaking. Through it all, she can look back at the end of the story and see how God had been lavishing his kindness upon her the whole time. And so I just want to encourage anybody out there who's feeling looked over by God, like he somehow missed their cries, that he hasn't, that that they're seen and they're loved, and he is working in the unseen, even if we can't see it and if we can't feel it. Oh, that one rings home. I was just thinking about that today, actually, how how I just, in a lot of ways, go about the daily routine of my life, and it's like nothing changes, nothing. There, there are, of course, all the, all the wonderful things that just about living life. There's nothing exciting. There's nothing big. It's just a daily thing. But yeah, God's in that too, and it doesn't mean He's not working. I like that. Let's go ahead and dive into more questions about the Maid of Ballymacool. Here is the back cover copy. Brianna Kelly was abandoned at Ballymacool House and Boarding School as an infant. She has worked there since she was a wee girl and will likely die there. Despite a sense that she was made for something more, Brianna feels powerless to change her situation, so she consoles herself by exploring the Ballymacool grounds, looking for hidden treasures to add to the secret trove beneath the floorboards of her room. When Michael Ray, the son of local gentry, is sent to Ballymacool to deal with his unruly cousin, he finds himself drawn to Brianna, immediately and inescapably. There is something about her that feels so familiar. When Brianna finds a piece of silver in the woods, she commits to learning its origins, with the help of Michael. What they discover may change everything. Fan favorite Jennifer Dybul invites you back to the Emerald Isle in the 1930s for this fresh take on the Cinderella story, complete with a tantalizing mystery, a budding romance, and a chance at redemption. That sounds so good. I especially like the mystery of whatever this silver piece is. Now, your first two books are set in the 1920s, but The Maid of Ballet McCool takes place in the 1930s. So why did you choose this era? Really, just by necessity for the story, I had been playing around with this idea of a story about a girl who was left on the doorstep of a boarding school as an infant. And I originally was actually thinking of setting it at Kylemore Abbey in County Clare on the border with Galway. And then I just came across this reel on Instagram, which I think must have been like an angel posted it because I cannot for the life of me find it anywhere again. But it was this drone footage, aerial footage of the Ballymacool ruins. And it just captivated me. So I started researching the history of it. And um, a lot of the things that Brianna finds in the woods actually happened when or were actual parts of the house that had been taken when troops had overrun the house during the Irish War for Independence. And so to time it right, for her to be the right age, for all of this to make sense, for her to be potentially falling in love and all this stuff, I had to count back from when that raid happened to when it could be a feasible time frame for all of this tomfoolery to happen. Yeah, just fitting everything together in your timeline according to real history. Well, I love that you respect that, just the time and place instead of being like, oh, I'll take, I'll just take creative license and change this a few years. (laughs) I like that you (laughs) stuck with what was authentic and it sounds really interesting. 
So your protagonist, Brianna Kelly, is a maid. What more can you tell us about her that really just sets her apart as a heroine? As I said, she was left on the doorstep of the woman who is now the headmistress of Bally McCool, which is a boarding school. And But at the time, she was just the local school teacher. The, the boarding school had not come about. And so... Mistress McGee was set out raising Brianna like her own daughter, but as Brianna grew, Mistress McGee's kind of hatred towards her also grew. And so she's been treated like the lowest of the low scullery maids. Like there's other staff at the school, other servant staff, service staff, but their staff, Brianna is really treated as like a slave maid, really, and not really given any chances to move beyond her current station. And so she's been this kitchen scullery maid her whole life and really just had no sense of nurturing from anyone who should have been the one to offer that to her. So she's spent a lot of her time figuring out how to console herself. She's figured out how to connect with God. And so just a lot of time on her own with this sort of underlying, when she was very young, she had this sort of burning, I'm going to, I'm going to change the world kind of passion. And that sort of got doused out throughout the years and the cruelty that was shown to her, but it's still rippling underneath there. And so when Michael shows up, some of the things that he does and says rekindles that in her, that hope in her. And she, she even has the thought that he was dangerous, not because he's handsome or bringing change to the school, but because he's awakening this hope in her and she found hope to be very dangerous. So she's got the sort of tug of war in her of, not wanting to totally lose hope, but at the same time, not wanting to hope too much and be disappointed again. Wow, that's that's deep. I really feel for Brianna in that instance, just being neglected. But how beautiful that Michael's able to awaken that. It's interesting. I remember watching Tangled with my daughters <laughs> and another mother commenting, oh, this is so unrealistic. She wouldn't be able to be happy. And sometimes people, they just have those kind of things to say. But and I think when you started, I was thinking that a little bit. I was like, oh my gosh, that poor girl, she must be so unhappy. And then you're referencing how she learned to trust in God. And it just reminds me of the verse from Psalms chapter 27, verse 10 says, though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. And some versions say, the Lord will take me up. And when in nature, like the ultimate caregivers are the parents or the mother and whatnot, that when that's not given, you know, that the Lord is there and that the Lord not just suffices that need, but fulfills it. And it sounds like that's what you've done in this story, which is just beautiful. Thank you. And there are some characters in there that come along and sort of sort of fan that flame in her as well, but they're a little bit more fun if you experience them fresh on the page. So I won't give too much away about them, but she does get a couple of friends here or there. Aww, that's wonderful. Oh, that's good. I love the secondary character. They come in and sometimes steal the show or just <laughs> really add so much to it. So that that will be fun too, to meet them too. I think you've probably already talked about this a little bit, but what is the thing that you hope readers will gain from reading your novel? Really with any of these books that I write, I seek the Lord as I write them. I ask him to speak through me, not of course, as like in a replacement of scripture kind of way, but just an inspiration. And my hope for all of my books is that those who are already on this journey of faith that are following Jesus would leave both encouraged and challenged in their faith to grow in some way. 
And those who are earlier on in that faith journey, where maybe they're exploring, or maybe they've had a bad experience with the church or a Christian, or they've just haven't had the opportunity, that they would also be encouraged and kind of moved one step closer to Jesus in their faith journey. And that um, for this story, particularly that, like I was saying before, anyone that is feeling unseen or unloved would see that they are so very loved and they're seen and that there's a purpose for their life beyond what they can see. But then also for the Michaels of the world out there that that see injustice happening, that they would be challenged to to take action where they can and to be the voice for the voiceless when they can as well. Yes, that bringing in part of the challenge, which is important too, because as we discover how much God loves us and how much He's given us, He offers us this opportunity to get involved in what He's doing. And yeah, sometimes it's going to be challenging, but that just means it's going to be more worthwhile. That's right. Well, what are you working on next? I am in the throes of writing book four, which is due in two weeks. So when I was logging on, I was like, okay, wait, which characters are we going to be talking about? What story am I talking about right now? Because I've been living in the world of Listu and Varna. So book four is as yet untitled, but um, this story is set during the matchmaking festival that happens in Listu and Varna in County Clare every year. It's been happening since the late 1800s and still happens every September. There are still matchmakers that match people. And we used to drive through this little village all the time because we would take groups down to see the Cliffs of Moher, sometimes better known as the Cliffs of Insanity from the Princess Bride. And we would drive through this town every time. And I would see the signs for this matchmaking festival. And I thought, my gosh, the crack must be so mighty like at this place, but I'm also slightly terrified to attend. And so I just started researching and thinking what would happen if the matchmaker herself was unmatched and unable to match herself? What would that look like for her? And this is a story following, oh my goodness, I've already forgotten her name. Oh yeah, Katrina. Katrina Daly is our matchmaker and she just wants to get the heck out of Dodge. She's tired of farmers and cattlemen and she's tired of watching people fall in love all around her while it seems to elude her. So she's trying to hatch a plan to catch a man herself that will take her far away from this place. And meanwhile, her father, who's also a matchmaker, tasks her with matching a local widowed farmer, Donald Bunratty. And she's annoyed that she has to do this while she's trying to also finagle a match with this gentrified bloke. So all sorts of shenanigans ensue. And it's been fun to imagine what sort of activities would have been planned for a matchmaking festival in 1905, when there's no electricity and no running water. And what would that be? I'm deep in the rabbit hole of that story at the moment. That sounds so much fun. And it's really cool that you could still go and experience the festival in its modern form these days. But you're you're exploring it back there turn of the century. That sounds really fun. I'm excited. It's been fun to write. It's been challenging, but fun. Well, for our listeners, Jennifer is offering a copy of The Maid of Hollywell Cool. To enter, just check out our giveaway page on historicalbookworm.com. You can also find the link in the show notes for this episode. And Jennifer, where can our listeners learn more about you? The best one-stop shop to connect with me is on my website, which is just jenniferdibel.com. I'm active on Instagram and Facebook, and the links for those are there, as well as the link for my newsletter. Send my newsletter out about once a month. Sometimes it's every two or three months, depending on how busy I get. And my newsies get 
first dibs on cover reveals and launch team applications and all the big news, they get to get it before everyone else. So all that's on my website at jenniferdiebel.com. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun just chatting with you and talking about your book in Ireland as well. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Hi, everyone. I'm Kimberly Woodhouse, and I'm an author who started walking and riding my way toward my deadlines to get myself moving. And I might be just a little bit obsessed with the Conqueror Virtual Challenges, just saying. But I've started something new, and it's called A Million Miles with Kim. The mission is to form a community on a journey to health. We all know that this journey is lifelong, and it can't be accomplished overnight. When one of us falls down in the mud puddle, we want to be there to help each other up. The goal to make it to a million miles together. I hope you join me, a million miles with Kim.com. Now for a pinch of the past. The Victorian era is known for detailed social rules and propriety, sometimes going wildly overboard from our point of view. So today I thought it would be fun to take a peek at a couple hints for proper courtship. Okay, so this is going to be fun because you hear everything like from the most bizarre articles online to real historians saying, oh, well, actually, it was this. They say that people were like getting married when they were like 16 and to be 18 meant you're an old maid. And then I know I looked at some, oh, it was like a summary of census records. And they're like, actually, most women were over 20 something when they got married. And I'm just like, hmm, very interesting. It is. It is. And some of those things, of course, had to do with class. My source today is Hill's Manual of Social and Business Forms. Now, the actual title for this book is an entire paragraph, but I will spare you because it gets a little little tedious. But Hill's Manual was a guide for the middle class or for those, you know, kind of working their way into the middle class. So it covered all kinds of business and social letters and practices. Literally, if you wanted to know how to append a power of an attorney to a quick claim deed, they could tell you how to do it. So now is this like a research book or is it a real historical book that was read in the Victorian era? Hill's Manual was originally published in 1873 and it became quite popular. By 1897, it was one of the top listings in the Sears and Roebuck book department. Now, I am referencing an abbreviated version of the Hills Manual. It's entitled True Ladies and Proper Gentlemen. It is edited by Sarah A. Chrisman. Mm, Right. Very cool. Yes. First of all, they listed a couple of reasons that you should not get married. Women were not supposed to marry just for a home or to prevent being an old maid. It says if she couldn't marry for love, then she is advised not to marry at all. I quote, unmarried ladies of mature years are proverbially among the most intelligent, accomplished, and independent to be found in society. The sphere of woman's action and work is so widening that she can today, if she desires, handsomely and independently support herself. That's really neat. And this was in the 1880s? Yes, exactly. The 1870s, 1880s. And of course, we think of that time as, oh, everybody's out to catch a husband. But some of the experts, at least, were recommending, no, if you can't find someone and marry for love, then don't get married. Find a way to support yourself. Awesome. That's good advice. Now, men, on the other hand, are advised not to marry a woman who is vastly richer than themselves just to jump past the hard work straight into wealth. 
it says that no matter what they might accomplish after the marriage, their wife and others will probably always attribute their accomplishments, at least in part, to his starting with his wife's money. And doesn't that just bruise the pride of a man? Exactly. (laughs) Apparently, that was not considered good for a man's psychological state. The quote says, It is not the possession, but the acquisition of wealth that gives happiness. Most independent men prefer to start, as all our wealthiest and greatest men have done, at the foot of the ladder and earn their independence. Hmm. Well... I admire the idea behind that. It's very much true, but I I think that's respectable, too. It's kind of like the American ideal of, you know, you pay your dues, you work your way up, and then you're satisfied because you've earned what you have. In practice, I'm not sure that's the case, but I suppose that's the ideal. Now, One of the ways that the courtship could start would be with correspondence. It said a gentleman can like meet a lady once and if he really likes her, just write to her immediately. But it's not really advised because on so short an acquaintance, she might just rebuff him and that would be it. It's better to meet her a few times at parties, be properly introduced, of course, by mutual acquaintance before sending that first letter. So if a gentleman writes to a lady requesting permission to call on her, she can, of course, reply in one of two ways. The sample letter for a favorable reply is, Dear Sir, it will give me much pleasure to see you at our residence next Wednesday evening. My father desires me to state that he retains a very favorable recollection of your uncle, in consequence of which he will be pleased to continue your acquaintance. So family and acquaintance was very important, I think. Yes, all about who you knew. Mm -hmm. And who could vouch for you? It's not like you could go on social media and stalk their Facebook page to see what they're posting. (laughs) Right. In a lot of cases, you had to have the reputation to know someone. Now, the unfavorable reply is very short and sweet. Miss Myra Bronson, making it a rule to receive no gentleman visitors upon such brief acquaintance, begs to decline the honor of Mr. Williams' visits. Very proper and gracious. Proper and gracious, and yep, that is a no. Uh, (laughs) But when it finally comes time to make the proposal, it says that the gentleman should, by this time, of course, be pretty sure of the lady's inclination. But apparently when it came time to pop the question, it was expected that he would be a little bit nervous. So it says he may write to the lady and make an offer. He may even just write it on a slip of paper while he's sitting with her and hand it to her and say, just give me yes or no you know, kind of jokingly, it says, he may ask her if in case a gentleman very much like himself was to make a proposal of marriage to her, what would she say? She will probably laughingly reply that it will be time enough to tell what she would say when the proposal is made. And so the ice will be broken. And this kind of offhand way of making a proposal actually reminds me of what Laura Ingalls recorded Almanzo did with her. They had been courting for forever. They used to go on buggy rides and they would go to you know, evening social events. And one night as they were driving home, he reached over and he took her hand, which he had never done before. And he said, I was wondering how you would feel about an engagement ring. And so Laura comes back with, well, that would depend on who offered it to me. (laughs) Good girl, Laura. And he says, well, if I should, she says, well, that would depend on the ring. Oh. And pulls her hand away. So Basically, he's just said, will you marry me? And she has said yes. Well, it depends on the ring. If the ring's pretty enough, she'll wear it and she'll be engaged to him. So it's 
kind of this funny little dynamic of he asked her a really serious question, but they're talking about it as if it's not. I don't know if he had read the book or not, but he was certainly following that advice. <laughs> Aww, well, that's precious. I like that. Me too. I hope you've enjoyed this peek at the principles for Victorian courtship. If you are interested in all things Victorian, I highly recommend True Ladies and Proper Gentlemen, edited by Sarah A. Christman. Time for our bookworm review. Today's review is brought to you by Narelle Adkins. So Narelle, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and then the book you're reviewing? Thank you. So, hi, my name is Narelle Atkins and I'm a multi-published author of contemporary Christian romance. I love reading historical fiction and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to share a book review at Historical Bookworm. Thank you, Kylie. You're welcome. I am so glad we could finally make it happen. We'd had to reschedule a couple times. So I first met Narelle when she and her co-host Valerie Comer and Elizabeth Madre invited me onto their podcast Story Chats to talk about split time fiction. Now that was back in 2021. It was episode 18. If you want to look that up, it was a lot of fun. Great episode. So thank you for coming on, Narelle. Today you'll be reviewing Codename Edelweiss by Stephanie Lansom. So here's a back cover copy. What I am looking for what I desperately need, Mrs. Weiss, is a spy. Adolf Hitler is still a distant rumble on the horizon, but a Jewish spymaster and his courageous spies uncover a storm of Nazi terror in their own backyard. In the summer of 1933, a man named Adolf Hitler is the new and powerful anti-Semitic Chancellor of Germany. But in Los Angeles, no-nonsense secretary Liesel Weiss has concerns much closer to home. The Great Depression is tightening its grip, and Liesel is the sole supporter of two children, an opinionated mother, and a troubled brother. Leon Lewis is a Jewish lawyer who has watched Adolf Hitler's rise to power and the increase in anti-Semitism in America with growing alarm. He believes Nazi agents are working to seize control of Hollywood, the greatest propaganda machine the world has ever known. The trouble is, authorities scoff at his dire warnings. When Lisa loses her job at MGM, her only choice is to work with Leon Lewis and the mysterious Agent 13 to spy on her friends and neighbors in her German-American community. What Leon Lewis and his spies find is more chilling and more dangerous than any of them suspected. Codename Edelweiss is based on the true story, unknown until recent years, how a lone Jewish lawyer and a handful of amateur spies discovered and foiled Adolf Hitler's plan to take over Hollywood. Codename Edelweiss is a fabulous story that challenged me to think about and process the massive and horrifying potential implications of what was happening in 1933 around the globe, particularly in Europe and the United States, when Hitler gained control of Germany. Being an Aussie, Hollywood and Germany are a long way from home. That said, Hollywood films in the 1930s were played in cinemas around Australia. If the Friends of New Germany propaganda machine in Los Angeles had taken control of the Hollywood studios, who knows how many more people, especially Jewish people, 
would have perished as a consequence of Hitler's indoctrination activities during his reign of evil and terror. The stakes are high and Liesel is drawn into a dangerous world working undercover as a secretary in the heart of the Friends of New Germany organisation. I read this book quickly and I couldn't put it down. I was awake until 2am, close to the end, and I finished reading the book when I woke bleary-eyed the next morning. Codename Edelweiss is a Christian novel and the faith themes are woven beautifully into the story. I love Stephanie Lansom's debut novel, In a Far-Off Land, and Codename Edelweiss exceeded my expectations. I recommend this book to historical fiction readers who like intriguing spy novels with romantic elements set in 1930s Hollywood. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And where can our listeners connect with you? You can connect with me at my website, norelleatkins.com. And you can also connect with me if you're listening to podcasts and like contemporary Christian romance at Story Chats at Inspire Romance. And we're on YouTube and also all the your favorite podcasting channels as well. Darcy, how are you doing? What are you up to as we start with spring break? Oh, I nothing special up for spring break. Um, I've definitely been enjoying the weather, though, getting in some nice long walks. And but nothing particular, actually. I um, I've been hanging out with with some friends, just chilling. How about you? Well, um, spring break. So I get the whole week off because I'm a teacher. So I'm really excited about that. Um, I have a second job, so I'll actually be working for three of those days. <laughs> However, my family, they're going over to Idaho and to visit some relatives there. And I was thinking about a trip to the coast. Um, however, when I looked at the weather, we're supposed to have snow. So, <laughs> oh. which usually means a pretty yucky drive through the mountains. And um, you'd think that snow at the beach would be just beautiful, but that close to the Pacific, it's usually just wet and yucky. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm actually digging back into my to-be-read pile, and I am going to read The Ring of Secrets by Rosanna M. White, and I believe that's part of the Culper, Culper Ring series. So I'm actually really excited about that. I got it on, I got this book on Audible, and I'm really picky about narrators, but I really like the way that this one was done. So very well done, and um, yeah, if anyone's interested, you can find that on Audible or obviously Amazon. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.